first, we have now heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry, a confirmation of sorts, and there will be new weekly updates on our flu situation. This after the media learned that six kids died of the flu in BC over the past couple of weeks. Those are the numbers, and shocking they are. But what about the action, and what can be done? What help is there? What is needed? Is this the norm, or is there something else that we're missing? Well, let's get to some of those uh, answers and welcome in our guest, who is Dr. Michael Curry, an emergency physician at Delta Hospital, also an associate prof at UBC. Good afternoon, doctor, and thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon. As always, a pleasure to be here. Now, this has been presented in the past, this flu season that we all know is, uh, well, we're talking about it as it's uh, really a difficult one. But it has been talked about by some as kind of the norm pre-pandemic, just an earlier start. Do you buy that? Is that what you've heard or is this something entirely kind of new? As a frontline emergency physician, this is a situation far beyond what we've seen in past years. Not only do we have flu at record numbers, but we do have what people are terming a tridemic. We have influenza circulating, NH3 type of influenza. We have respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, that can make young children very sick. And on top of that, of course, COVID has not gone away. And in fact, we're actually in another wave of COVID right now. Before we even talk about some of the challenges and, as you say, challenges uh, right now and probably going into 2023, let's talk about uh, those three factors um, and uh, what that really means. What came about to make this situation so stressful on the system? Well, I think there's two, two parts to that question. The first part is what's happening with the disease and the virus going around. The second part is what's happening with the healthcare system. So in terms of the disease itself is basically we had almost no flu in British Columbia, at least no spread in British Columbia during the peak of the pandemic. Social distancing, social distancing and wearing masks basically eliminated the flu. That's changed. The flu is back in full strength. And normally when there's a flu virus circulating, it actually circulates for a couple of years before it notably changes. And so you would see the flu sort of spread out and people who got sick with the flu one year would have some protection against the flu strain the next year. Here, we've basically had no flu for about a year and a half. So we have a vulnerable population whose body has lost some of its antibodies to fight out the flu. Now you can replace that with a flu shot, but the flu shot isn't always a perfect match for the virus that's circulating. On top of that, we have this RSV virus. Usually affects young children, first year of life. Almost all of us as adults have had this probably a couple of times in our life. What's happened is we had kids that in the first two, three years of life have actually not been exposed to RSV and they're getting it now. And this disease can make young children very sick. And the third, of course, is we have a new wave. We have a new wave of COVID circulating and the COVID virus is mutating to get away from some of the excellent protection that was offered by COVID vaccination, that's waning as the strain mutates and evolves away from the strain that the vaccines were designed for. So that's what's happening on the disease front. The other side is the system front. The system has really been slammed throughout COVID just because we ran our system at over 100% capacity at the best of times. And then we tossed a pandemic on top of that. What that's led to is a lot of burnout. 
people who are working in emergency departments, 24-hour care, nurses are mobile. They have a job set that's highly in demand elsewhere. They're quitting and going to eight to four jobs that more or less pay the same as, you know, working at three in the morning and three during the afternoon. The pay as per their contracts are only slightly different. They're in a much more controlled environment. So they leave emergency medicine, they leave ICUs, they leave acute care units to work in jobs that are more predictable. And when they're working in these more predictable jobs, that means there's fewer people in the emergency for patients. And we enter into the spiral where nurses would normally care for three to four patients in the emerge. They're routinely caring for seven or eight. That's burning out more nurses. So what's happening? Now the nurses are caring for nine or 10 patients at a time versus the three or four patients they should. So there's this huge crisis in healthcare staffing, particularly in the acute care areas like ICUs and emergency departments that operate 24-7. You know, and I get it. Uh, anyone that goes into the line of work uh, that you're in in healthcare, be it nurses, specialists, or uh, doctors like yourself, they're going to expect to have uh, some of these challenges and difficulties. But with COVID, we always had kind of this feeling that there would be an end in sight. And, uh, you know, uh, you're not superhuman. I know uh, doctors uh, get this uh, this idea that they do have lots of power, and they do, but you're not a god, and you're not able to go and continue on day after day after day, anyone working with us, so without knowing that there's got to be some sort of solution or end. What is the feeling that you're getting from your colleagues right now? Are we going to actually move out of a COVID situation? You know, unfortunately, I think it's becoming more and more clear that COVID-19 and its descendants are here to stay. The uh, 1918 flu pandemic was an H1N1 flu, hence why it's H1N1. It was sort of the first big flu of the modern era. And it was causing infections. Its children were causing infections with H1 pandemics as late as 2010. And we're still seeing some not this year, but up to 2019, there was still a lot of H1N1. And that was the grandchild of the flu pandemic from 1918. And unfortunately, it's looking like COVID-19 is going to move in that direction as well. It's going to adapt. We're going to get new vaccines. We're going to get new acquired immunity where we pick up immunity from having it. But unfortunately, the COVID-19 virus is so widespread and it's an unstable virus that mutates. It's going to be with us for the long haul. Where's the glimmer of hope? Going into 2023, are you seeing any? Well, the big glimmer, the big glimmer of hope on the COVID front is the COVID virus seems to have inherently mutated to a type of virus that's less that's less uh, prone to kill people and make them ill. That's one good mark. The second one, which is gigantic, is the impact of immunizations. We know that the immunizations against COVID they do not protect against current strains as well as they protected against the older streams that they were designed to protect against. But nonetheless, being well vaccinated against COVID it might not protect you from getting sniffles, a cough and a cold, but it's very good at protecting you from keeping you out of the hospital, keeping you away from respirators, keeping you away from dying. So immunization has made COVID a whole different disease than it was before, and the virus itself is changing. We've been talking about the combination that nobody ever wanted to see, that combination being respiratory viruses, uh, you've got the flu, and of course COVID still uh, mutating into its various different forms. Well, that's putting a strain on the healthcare system, and then we had this 
terrible news and a confirmation this week that six children had passed away in our province of the flu. Um, well, talking about some of these things, uh, Dr. Curry, thanks so much for staying with us. Uh, you know, when when I hear six, I'm shocked. What is the norm for, for the flu? I know children still die these days in our province, unfortunately. But uh, going back pre-pandemic, what would we typically see? So for deaths in children due to the flu, it would be a very low number, you know, zero, one, two patients. So six is not. It's a small number, but of course, it's a tremendous tragedy to everybody involved and a lot to the world as well. But the flu does have a fatality rate of about 0.03%. We tend to brush off the flu, always just got the flu. But we have to remember the flu kills on an average year about 3,000 Canadians. So it's not as deadly as COVID was in its heyday. COVID was much more on a percentage basis, much more, much more risky to contract. But we seem to have gotten fairly blasé about the fact that we have flu circulating in approximately 3,000 Canadians a year, the vast majority older, but nonetheless, uh, do pass away in an average flu season. And it's looking like this is going to be far above an average flu season. And when we talk about the flu, I, I know as a parent... I'm always uh, afraid and have been afraid in the past when you take a temperature of a child. You don't want to see the numbers creeping up and many of us parents get more concerned as we see the numbers getting larger and larger for a fever. Um, Is it the fever or is it something else that is really the dangerous thing in here? So Bruce, usually the fever is not the issue. The The big thing with a fever, when I hear that a patient has a fever is A, is it actually fever? Is it a temperature of over 38 degrees or 100.4 Fahrenheit or higher? Once that question's asked, I'm usually not too concerned about how high it is. We used to be a little bit more hung up on the theory that high temperatures can cause seizures and we need to follow the temperature. But once you know you have a fever, the big question to me after that's why you have the fever. So if your kid is looking healthy, they're eating, they're playing video games, but the thermometer is giving you a scary number, I wouldn't worry about that so much. What I would worry about are the children who have breathing problems, who are really straining to breathe, if they're confused, sleepy, really tired, not eating, not going to the bathroom. That's what I'd watch out for. But definitely it's out there and a lot of people believe that a fever must be treated. It doesn't need to be treated in and of itself. And of course, there's a huge shortage of both ibuprofen, Motrin or Advil, as well as acetaminophen, Tylenol or Tempra. And so a lot of parents can't find medicine to help with the fever, so they feel obliged to seek medical care. And, of course, seeing a family doctor is a challenge for a lot of people, so they come to the emergency. So that's adding to the volume that we're seeing. But a fever in and of itself is not a reason to see a doctor. If you've got a good explanation for why your child has a fever, presumably an upper respiratory tract infection this time of year, if they're otherwise looking well, you don't need to see a doctor if your only concern is the fever itself. Short-term and long-term are two different things uh, when we talk about this whole flu situation for children, I would imagine. Short-term, as you highlighted, uh, knowing the system, if you have a child that has a fever uh, or something that's happened, perhaps even on a weekend, Getting into seeing a doctor on a walk-in at a walk-in clinic, especially if you're dealing uh, with the Fraser Valley, is almost impossible. Um, good luck; it's not going to happen. So then you turn to what urgent care or to the ER, um, and even then we're seeing these long delays. 
Uh, is there a different system or a better way to go about this? What do parents need to know? So I think there are different approaches, but uh, not in British Columbia, unfortunately. So, um, you know, unfortunately, after hours, and we're seeing this more and more due to the crisis in family medicine, is the ability of patients to see a family doctor, whether through a walk-in clinic or through a regular family doctor, is severely compromised. And I know in Vancouver, where I live, walk-in clinics are not accepting new patients. If you haven't been to that walk-in clinic before, they will not see you. And even if you have been there before, it's often a wait for a virtual visit and an in-person visit maybe days away after that. So it's incredibly challenging to see family physicians. So I do not begrudge parents who have concerns that come to the emergency department. They don't have other options. And we will be there. Unfortunately, that adds to our volume, and it's going to mean very long waits. The good news is if the nurses think you can tolerate a long wait, that's usually a reassuring sign. Be worried when the emerge docs come rushing up to you as soon as you come in the door. That's when you should be worried. We're talking with Dr. Michael Curry, who is a emergency room physician, also an associate prof at UBC. Uh, doctor, uh, there's also this long-term thing, and uh, we heard uh, a terrible stat this week. Not a surprise to you, of course, but to many of us, it was. 20% of children in our province of elementary school age were not vaccinated for the flu. Um, so there is this blitz this weekend, a three-day blitz announced by the province. Will it make a difference? I think it should. Uh, the problem that we've always had with the flu vaccine is it is not as consistently as consistently dependable as other vaccines. Some vaccines, smallpox, uh, polio, work to the point that those diseases have essentially been eliminated, essentially. Um, because that those viruses don't change. And so the vaccines designed in the 1950s, 1960s still work extremely well. The flu virus, and to a lesser extent the COVID virus, are unstable viruses. They mutate and change quite rapidly. And so when we're making flu vaccines, because we're making billions of doses for around the world, there's about an 18-month lead time. So there's a bit of a guesstimate done 18 months in advance as to what we're going to put in the flu vaccine. Sometimes we get it right and the flu vaccine works very well. Unfortunately, some years the virus changes and the virus that the vaccines are, fight to, are designed to fight against either three or four, depending on which vaccine you get, that sometimes doesn't match the virus that's circulating and we don't always get dependable protection. But definitely your best protection against the flu, other than hygiene, washing your hands, potentially masking, socially distancing, is a flu shot. Well, thank you very much, doctor. Appreciate your time. And we're all hoping for the best in this situation. When we were talking about Surrey, by the way, we're talking about uh, some of the gentrification things happening around Surrey Central. And if you keep an eye on that neighborhood, one of the things that uh, comes to mind, one of the great shining things is that SFU campus, Simon Fraser University's tower right there at Surrey Central. And news this week, of course, it's good news and a lot of has been a lot of attention is being paid to the fact that we're getting a new medical school. And that medical school is coming to Surrey Central, going to be at SFU. Great news for the healthcare system. But arguably, it's also fantastic news for Surrey. 
for Surrey as a whole and the businesses right in that community. Once you bring in a medical school, boy, you just wonder about the possibilities of everything else to kind of support it and back it up and things that can grow out of that. And that is one of those topics I think that needs a little bit more exploration. And we're going to do that right now because Anita Hubberman is the Surrey Board of Trade CEO and with us. Anita, thanks so much uh, for joining us on a Friday afternoon. Good afternoon. Am I right to think that uh, as a Surrey resident myself, uh, this is something really to be excited about a medical school coming into Surrey? You bet. It is so exciting. And you know, I always say that Surrey is an opportunity city, but uh, this attention uh, and this investment of close to $5 million by the BC government is going to revitalize uh, Surrey. It is going to bring uh, national, international attention. And more and more importantly, it's going to uh, deliver the human capital we need to fill the gap in our healthcare industry to deliver primary healthcare services. So as a resident um, and even as a business community, we should be all excited and celebrating what is happening in Surrey, which is going to be the largest city in British Columbia very soon. One of the things that, uh, and I had a bit of a discussion with a few people about this, uh, there is kind of like this um, gap, I guess, between geographic gap between Surrey, uh, the Surrey Hospital and uh, the SFU campus. It's not a big gap. It's uh, King George Boulevard. But uh, they are kind of uh, separated apart. I would imagine, and I don't know if you've heard more about this, but would this new addition with a medical school actually work in conjunction with a hospital? And if so, what would that mean for that whole kind of King George area, which is changing so much already? Well, number one is um, this uh, medical facility, this uh, training facility that SFU is going to be building out is going to be a part of our health and technology district. Uh, So uh, that district, three towers built, another five to come, um, where the hospital is, is going to be working together in collaboration um, it's going to build out the trajectory of our healthcare and life science industry. So it's all going to be connected and revitalize um, that downtown area. But it's also going to be connected to the brand new hospital uh, that is being built in Surrey with a state of the art um a center of excellence for cancer care uh, and for health care services in the Cloverdale area of Surrey. So it's going to unite our city. It's going to really make that bridge for the South Fraser economic region uh, to um, revolutionize uh, different health care technology. So really coming into a new hospital that's going to be uh, built in Cloverdale near Highway 10, um, Highway 10, and I'm just trying to think, uh, oh, about 180th, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to imagine the lot. Um, but uh, certainly Cloverdale 
and then we have this one in Surrey Central. Um, two very uh, distant places within a large uh, a large city, a city municipality. But the other thing that's happening at the same time is we're going to have this SkyTrain coming in, which makes things a lot easier, connects the two. Uh, not directly because it's not going to be right to the hospital in Cloverdale, but you would imagine there's going to be a bus around there. What are you hearing from people that are looking to develop in those areas? Uh, Have you heard any more buzz now that this announcement about a medical school coming in? uh, Have you heard any more buzz uh, from maybe the development community, people thinking about locating? Well, there's already been uh, such significant development growth. There's another 16 towers that are going to be built uh, near that new SFU medical campus. Uh, And so, uh, you know, what is going to happen there in the downtown core and then around the SkyTrain corridor into the Cloverdale area where the new hospital is going to be built is going to, you know, I'm hearing much um, significant attention and interest around investment infusion uh, to really revitalize these neighborhoods and communities. Um, we're also advocating not only, uh, you know, for innovative transportation connections in addition to SkyTrain and buses uh, and uh, maybe funded through the private sector that can connect all of our town centers and as you know bruce as a resident of our city uh, you can fit the cities of vancouver richmond uh, burnaby into our geographic limits so we need other ways to connect uh, to our healthcare services to our educational institutions but there is significant attention not only by the development construction community but by businesses, um, industry partners that want to cluster. Uh, They want to leverage the opportunity uh, that a new medical training uh, facility at SFU, complementary with what Kwantlen University offers, what UBC will be offering when they enter our education ecosystem in seven to eight years, it is going to be exciting and people want to leverage that opportunity, Bruce. We've heard the announcement, and it is great news for the healthcare system, SFU, and its Surrey Central campus going to get the new medical school coming into Surrey. That's going to be also great news for the city of Surrey, for all the different things that can attract not only to the neighborhood around Surrey Central, but also to areas as our guest Anita Hubberman with the Surrey Board of Trade has pointed out, areas like Cloverdale that are getting a new hospital coming up, uh, which has already been announced. It is an exciting time and we're continuing this conversation. But uh, Anita Hubberman, let's be honest, uh, Surrey Central has been a neighborhood that has had a tough time with gentrification and attracting businesses into what should be a really vibrant business area has not necessarily been easy, has it? It hasn't, but it's gotten easier, uh, especially, uh, you know, in the past 10 years. 
you know, with uh, the medical district, uh, the health and technology district that I mentioned across the street from the hospital by the LARC group, it has served as an anchor of urban revitalization. It has served as an opportunity for us to leverage um, the brand that of Surrey to attract businesses. Uh, the work of Simon Fraser University, Kwantlen University, um, and a variety of industry spaces are anchors to be able to fuel not only community revitalization, but also industry attraction. More needs to be done, certainly. And our new mayor, uh, we, we've called for Mayor Locke for a renewed uh, economic and jobs plan for Surrey. We need to work with our regional economic agency, uh, Invest Vancouver through Metro Vancouver. And we're working with Cascadia's um, corridor where there's a coalition uh, that the Surrey Board of Trade, myself, were a part of leveraging uh, the Silicon Connections. Um, and also our international connections, such as with MedTech Ireland, to co-locate businesses in Surrey. The opportunity in Surrey, I just wanted to add, is that we're a very diverse population um, uh, with 104 different languages that are spoken. The human capital is here, and that's why it is getting easier for us to attract businesses. But the work continues, and the work still needs to be done. And it does. And I wanted to pick up on the economic plan that you're uh, having the conversation with with the new mayor, Brenda Locke. Uh, but also, um, I, and I think that's a great direction, but I also know that uh, anyone that's coming in to take a look at Surrey, if they were to stop at the location uh, right in Surrey Central, right in the central area of Surrey Central, so right around the SkyTrain station. If you look to the south, you're going to see a view of a magnificent um, tower that's got the university uh, residential towers in there and a lot of construction, a lot of really fantastic things. Look to the north and not too far away and go for a walk. And if you are a business coming into Surrey, you would be doing this If you go for a walk and a stroll, you're going to come across some real challenges. And I've often said this when it comes to talking about business and development. We call the neighborhood Surrey Central. When it comes to crime and problems, we call it Wally. Where do we stand with the branding and some of the changes that still need to occur? Well, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And branding is one of the other elements that I mentioned to the new mayor, where we need to change. Um, We need to uh, really work on, you know, the words that we're saying, the work that we're doing. Uh, Downtown Surrey is um, not only central city, but it also includes Wally, and it has a significant um, ecosystem of social challenges that we need to all collaborate and work on together. The attention can't only be focused on um, the high-rises and, and all everything that I've spoken about. Every single person matters in this economy, and uh, we need to ensure that, um, you know, we're working on, uh, you know, those areas that um, are visibly challenged 
where those uh, individuals that are in those areas are supported through different infrastructure uh, needs. And um, there needs to be a shift in that by the city of Surrey in alignment with the city's what we're calling a renewed economic and jobs plan that is needed for Surrey. And, um, you know, we're, we're hoping for that dialogue and that collaboration with the city of Surrey. I think it will come and there probably will be a time where we're able to attract businesses from around, uh, well, even uh, the West Coast uh, locating right into Surrey and even skipping Vancouver, uh, especially in biotech and biohealth. Um, do you think that's a, a strong enough statement, a positive statement? Do you feel confident with that? I do, because number one, our um, leasing rates, um, our availability of land, uh, we have the uh, 27% of Metro Vancouver's uh, employment lands. Uh, Vancouver is building up and we're still able to build out uh, here in Surrey. Uh, People can live, learn, work uh, here in the city. Certainly we need more infrastructure for arts and culture for our workforce. But we're working on it. We're a new city and um, this is a journey. Uh, the, The new medical school, it is going to serve as an anchor for urban revitalization. And on that note, uh, and you're right, it will serve as that anchor. Uh, There is work to be done, and I think you've uh, outlined it. Anita Hubberman, thanks so much. Uh, There's so many more things we could talk about. We don't have the time, but we will have you back. Thank you so much, Bruce. Well, that bun fight continues in Surrey. The bun fight over which is going to be the police force of jurisdiction Uh, The one going forward in a few years' time, is it going to be the RCMP or is it going to be the Surrey Police Service? Surrey Police Service being the idea of Doug McCallum, previous mayor, who did not get re-elected. Brenda Locke is the new mayor and uh, has campaigned on a promise that the RCMP will be that police force of jurisdiction. So there are many opinions because the transition was already underway before the election. And there are still living out beyond the election all the different opinions about what is going to happen. But taking it away from the bun fight itself, there is action that is before council. And Surrey Council has this draft report from city staff, and it does have numbers attached to it, and a finding about the costs of each to go through this and go through the actual facts and what's happening right now is Janet Brown, Global News and CKNW reporter. And uh, Janet, you know, it's so nice to have you in here because uh, I just want to get down to the nuts and bolts of some of the actions and get away from some of the opinions. What are we dealing with on Monday night and what's going to be voted on? Good afternoon, Bruce. Nice to be here as well. Well, yeah, that is the million-dollar question. Who is going to be the police of jurisdiction in the city of Surrey? Is it going to be the RCMP? Is it going to be the Surrey Police Service? 
And the person that is going to have the ultimate decision is Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, and we should find out from him his decision sometime perhaps mid-January is what I've been told. And you're right, we are getting down to the brass tacks finally. We're putting all the opinions and controversy aside. Today we got an 88-page report, a draft report, that is going before Surrey Council on Monday night from Surrey City staff. And basically what we were looking for in these 88 pages is how much is it going to cost to police the city with the RCMP versus the SPS? And finally, we're getting a look at those numbers, numbers that have been tossed around by both sides and various others over the last couple of months, dare I say last couple of years. Finally, we're getting this report from neutral city staff who have simply being crunching the numbers. And when I say simply, Bruce, I don't mean it was an easy task. I mean, they sat down, they got all the information together, they laid it out, and now they are presenting it to City Council and to the public as well. And here's what it says. It says, retaining the RCMP as police of jurisdiction in the City of Surrey provides estimated policing operating cost savings to the city of 235 $0.4 million over the next five years, as opposed to continuing with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Now, this analysis uh, includes ongoing capital expenditures and transfers to capital reserves, but it does not include major capital funding requests. Those are excluded. The estimated five-year cost for policing with the RCMP, it says, $9.24.8 million. And the report says the Surrey Police Service would be approximately, over the next five years, $2.35.4 million more. Well, that is uh, the job of staff is to come over and come across uh, with uh, some of the dollars, and they have done that. Is there a recommendation attached to that? I know that sometimes staff reports come out with a recommendation, but uh, with this being so politically charged, do they just present numbers and then it's up to council, I would presume, to make a decision? That's correct. I mean, this is the information that council requested, so they've come back with that. Uh, 88 pages is a lot to go through. I'm still in the process of reading the whole thing. But there's lots of interesting nuggets in it as well as those numbers, Bruce. It also says that the initial phase of the transition agreement will expire next May and requires renewal by all stakeholders. Renewal. No agreement, it says, is in place to enter the second phase of this transition, leaving most issues involving critical infrastructure and equipment unresolved. It says the legal mechanisms necessary to continue with the transition are yet to be negotiated and no formal notice that Surrey will be exiting from its contract for RCMP services has yet been provided, of course, to the federal government. Um, also part of this report, which I found interesting, is a letter and it's also going before council. It has support from the Lower Mainland RCMP Mayor's Forum. It is signed by Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart and it is uh, basically showing uh, support for the RCMP remaining 
thing in the city of Surrey. Uh, it is a four-page letter. It says that they have concerns about uncertainty around financial implications to local governments uh, because of um, ongoing funding commitments by senior levels of government. And they also say uh, if they move away from the RCMP, they have concerns about public safety as well. Why they have concerns around public safety, these mayors, it doesn't it doesn't spell that out. So, you know, and it really drills down into numbers uh, around the Surrey RCMP versus the SPS. But take it into account for this report. A lot of it a lot of it had to do as well, Bruce, with what officers earn in the RCMP versus the SPS. And it says the majority are making more who are working for the SPS. So, of course, that lowered the, the overall estimated cost of the RCMP over the next five years. And I would encourage uh, folks listening right now to go online and take a look at this report, read through it, scan through it, do what you like. But, you know, inform yourself as to what is in this report. In the few short minutes we have chatting about it, Bruce, you know, I'm, I'm summarizing what's in the report. But for people to really be knowledgeable about it, I encourage them to go online. It's available for everybody to uh, go on the City of Surrey website and take a look at this report and uh, familiarize yourself with what's in it. Well, of course, and 88 pages, we're not going to be able to uh, summarize all of that in the amount of detail to come up with, uh, you know, something that is conclusive, certainly not on the radio. But uh, I think you've done a fantastic job of highlighting some of these. The one question I have, Janet, maybe you can uh, help me with this. I still hear word that the Surrey Police Service is hiring and in a hiring phase. And when I think of budgets and, uh, and you know, how uh, something may work, uh, a budget has to be renewed, and uh, we're coming up to budget time in the spring. Is there money in place, or can the taps be turned off by Brenda Locke and, uh, and the city at some point for any new hires? How is that going to work? Bruce, that is a great question, and here's what I know. Here's what I'll share with you what I know. A few weeks ago at Council, uh, Council voted to stop and ask the SPS to stop spending any more money. The SPS, on the other hand, said, hey, it's business as usual. They are continuing to spend money according to Mayor Brenda Locke. She told us that a few weeks ago. So because they have not stopped the spending and because they continue to spend, even though they've been asked to stop it by council, Brenda Locke uh, has told me, and I've done stories about it, she's now going to the province to presumably ask the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, that the SPS stop spending while all this uncertainty remains. So that's where we are right now. Now, in terms of this report going before council on Monday, Bruce, uh, the city is getting a, a report ready, the final report ready for the public safety minister, Mr. Farnworth, by December 15th. That's when he's expecting the final report on his desk. And we are told... As I said, it's up to him whether they go ahead with the SPS or stay with the RCMP. Mr. Farnworth apparently will uh, have that decision sometime around the middle of January. Middle of January. That's uh, that's a key one uh, because many of us are just looking for when, as I call it, the bun fight, when it's going to stop. And perhaps it comes down to uh, Mike Farnworth actually making that decision. But uh, here's where I was a little bit surprised and maybe naive. 
And I think a lot of voters in Surrey may have been uh, that way too. Whether it's Brenda Locke or Doug McCallum, uh, or what other, whatever side you ended up on, many people believe the mayor would have the final say and not the province. But from everything we're seeing here, it actually is a province, isn't it? Well, all along, Mr. Farnworth did say, uh, you know, what happens is up to the city of Surrey. So the city of Surrey, the council has voted uh, to stop the transition. But at the end of the, the day, policing is a responsibility of the public safety minister, Mr. Farnworth. He is responsible for policing in the province of BC. So yes, the buck stops with him. He will have the final decision. But of course, you know, it's not him alone making this decision. He's getting input from everybody in his office, all his staff. They are also gathering this information. And clearly they will also take this report from Surrey City staff into account as well. I mean, it's got to feature prominently in his decision. And at the end of the day, no matter what it is, let's face it money is always a key consideration is it not oh money is and uh when it comes right down to it that is one of the key considerations i wouldn't want to be mike farnworth to be honest uh not with this one and i uh, don't envy him the job because i think it's going to be uh whatever decision is made and where it falls it's going to land on him uh taking the rap for it and uh, be it right or be it wrong there you go. Uh, Janet, thanks so much. I really do appreciate your time and following this story so closely because it is so complex and uh, and not an easy one. Thank you for uh, joining us on your Friday afternoon. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. You know, if you're looking at buying a car, boy, things are changing and you're hearing so many more stories right now and we can... Uh, Hear a lot more, expect a lot more heading into the new year for 2023. Just in the last uh, few weeks, well, we've had the cancellation of the Vancouver International Auto Show this spring. It had been off for a couple of years because of COVID. Now, the issue being supply chain issues. And we've heard so many challenges with that, whether it's parts or actually the finished product. Uh, actually, getting a car has been very difficult. Then there is financing. It is a lot more expensive now to borrow money. So that is also playing into going to a car lot and uh, perhaps your experience heading into the new year if you're looking to buy a car. And then there are also the changes in the way we buy, changes in technology, how we buy cars in 2023, a whole lot different. Well, some of that comes down to apps and digital technologies. Canada Drives, by the way, is a big part of that. And it's a, you know, a system where you can start your search by browsing through an inventory, looking for a car, sort through the years, the model, the, life, uh, the lifestyle, all those different things you want. And then you buy it online and get it delivered. That's just one of the systems, but it's a whole lot different. You're seeing lots of competition when it comes to new technologies in buying cars. To talk about some of these changes that just make your head almost want to blow off is Chris Reynolds. Uh, he is a VP with Canada Drives. Hey, Chris, thanks for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure, Bruce. You know, uh, am I right to think that uh, buying a car really is different uh, right now than it has been in, say, like the last time I bought a car, which was only three years ago? 
Definitely. Um, I think uh, a lot of things are changing. I think availability is is a big challenge. Um, Pricing. um, But I think what we've done in coming out with our new model of buying a vehicle online, uh, we're trying to just save time and hassle for consumers to get the vehicle they love uh, at the price they, they want. There certainly seems to be a bit of a drive for this, whether it is uh, your service or other ones coming on startups, uh, Mintlist, um, and technology really is changing to, I would argue, serve a need. What has been the challenge that you've heard coming out of uh, the auto industry that needed to be addressed for something like a Canada Drives to come along? Yeah, good good question. I think, you know, when you think about the traditional car buying process, um, it's not a a pleasant experience. You're, you know, spending time driving from dealership to dealership to find a a vehicle you love. Uh, Once you do find something you love, you're spending hours within that dealership. Um, There's the unwanted kind of haggling process, upsells, uh, hidden fees. Um, you know, there's just a lot of challenges with the tr- traditional process, and we're trying to uh, alleviate all those issues with our new service. Now, those uh, challenges are different now than probably when uh, even Canada Drives uh, started up. When I say that, uh, you started up the whole concept before there were even really supply chain issues. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Canada Drives has been in business, um, you know, uh, selling cars for, for over 10 years now. Uh, and it really just came down to just making a, a generally a more efficient process. But I think with the, you know, uh, with COVID coming into play and, and people not being able to get out and, and uh, you know, shop for a vehicle, traditionally, uh, our, our service was a perfect fit. Uh, where, you know, literally consumers uh, in, in our markets, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, uh, can shop, you know, thousands of vehicles in each of those locations, uh, do it for the comfort of their couch, even financing it online, uh, and we deliver the car to them, um, you know, including a, a seven-day return policy. So COVID was a big push in, in the direction of people, you know, liking our service because they didn't have to leave their home to get their next vehicle. I remember back in the day, um, and maybe this is still around, I don't know, but you used to be able to go and get these uh, car trading magazines, or I call them magazines, they're always on uh, uh, newsprint and very cheap newsprint at that. But uh, you would flip through and take a look at uh, the cars from various different auto lots and sometimes even private sales. Those have disappeared, have they not? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think just consumers are much more comfortable in an online environment. Everybody's got a, a handheld computer or their phone, you know, that they're walking around with everywhere. And it's much easier uh, to access, you know, uh, vehicle availability through your phone, through your computer. Uh, so the need of those traditional, you know, uh, uh paper, you know, is, is, is not as, as, as prevalent. Now, I take a look at uh, a Canada Drives, and I kind of liken it to perhaps um, the travel industry, where you can go to one travel site and, uh, you know, look at different deals, or you can go to those ones that pull from multiple sources. Is that how kind of uh, Canada Drives operates and some of your competition operates? 
Yeah, with us, uh, everything available in our inventory uh, is our own inventory. We're not, you know, introducing people to, you know, other dealerships. It's solely us. Um, and the reason we do that is so each consumer has that, that same, you know, great experience of uh, dealing with us directly where we're not pushing them off to a, a middle person. Uh, the price that you see on our site is the price. So uh, through the traditional kind of like auto directories, you'll deal with a whole bunch of different dealerships. Um, and a lot of those dealerships have kind of hidden fees and other service charges in there. So you don't really get the true price of the vehicle when shopping. So that's one of the things we're trying to change is by having like a, a standard pricing for everybody, no need to haggle, kind of no unwanted upsells or whatnot. So it's the price you see is what you get. Um, and so it's just a more cleaner, you know, shopping process. If I go into a car lot, I know that I'm going to talk to two people probably. I'm going to talk to uh, the person that's selling the car and then with a decent-sized car lot, I'm going to go into the business office and talk with uh, somebody that's doing the financing. And uh, there are sales on both ends. Um, but the person in the financing office is the one that's going to try to match me up with the best financing from uh, available lenders. How does that work when it comes to online uh, services like Canada drives. Where, where's the business office? Yeah, they're really, it's, it's just through our online system. So um, just as a traditional dealership, we are working with all the top institutions in Canada, the TDs, the Bank of Nova Scotia, et cetera. So there's no difference in who we're working with to get the best rate, you know, for our customers. Uh, if anything, there's maybe a step previous to going down that path that we highly recommend people to do. And that is getting, a pre-approval. Uh, some people will go through an entire purchase process. They'll go visit a dealership, which may take time. They'll go test drive a vehicle. They'll spend a couple hours with the sales agent, get put to the finance office, and may not be able to get approved for that vehicle they were looking at. So we have a pre-approval process online that's automated and instant that somebody will get a, a number that they're able to go then shop with. So they'll get approved for $40,000, let's say, and they can actually go shopping through our, our selection of inventory for vehicles under 40000 So we highly recommend that people get a pre-approval first before shopping so that everything else is smooth. But with us, it's actually, it's all just done online uh, through technology and us communicating with financial institutions in the background. The two other ways or reasons why I would want to go old school, and I don't know if uh, there's a solution for that when it goes to online or to like a Canada Drives. But going old school, I know that I can also get insurance very easily with somebody uh, coming in. Uh, maybe there's an insurance person right there in the office, or maybe there's a, a driver that comes around to the dealership. But insurance is pretty easy. The other one and the transfer for vehicle. The other one is uh, getting rid of my old junker, my old car, and getting a good deal. Uh, those are two things that I can trust off my auto lot. Is that something that you're able to do through Canada Drives, or how do you address that? Yeah, uh, great points. Insurance, we take care of it, and I would say it's, it's probably an easier process than what you deal with at a traditional dealership. Because we're going through a finance process anyways, we have all the information we need to manage the insurance process for a consumer. So we actually do that work for them. 
We reach out to the insurance agency. We supply the information. So we're coming, uh, when we're delivering the vehicle, we're coming with license plate ready to rock and roll uh, with an insured vehicle. So I would say with us, it's quicker. There's less burden on the consumer to actually meet with another individual and give them kind of information that they've already given us, you know, or already given that dealership for a finance deal. Uh, so insurance is actually easier with us. Um, from the junker perspective, so we're not uh, buying or trading in all vehicles. There are certain years, like uh, newer than 2014 vehicles will take. Uh, but it's actually another instant thing you can do on our website is apply a trade-in where we will actually, uh, you put in the information about your vehicle, potentially VIN or just information about the vehicle. We'll find out what we're willing to pay for that vehicle. And then when you're shopping on our site, we'll actually take that trade-in value off of the purchase price. So you're actually seeing what you're actually going to have an output for for, for your financing. Um, so while it might not be a, a junker we're purchasing, uh, we will purchase vehicles. And when we deliver the new vehicle, we will literally take away the old vehicle with us. So the consumer, again, doesn't have to do anything. They don't have to leave the comfort of their home. This system, Chris, I know it's uh, something that uh, is open to competition yourself, and there are other services uh, coming in that will be doing this online. Um, but uh, I want to talk about the traditional way of uh, buying a car. Do you see that the auto lot, the old car lot, is there a future for that, or is it going to disappear? It's a really good question. I, I think... Um with us, so one of the big things, and, and this would be a, a challenge for us, is, you know, there are people who still want to, uh, you know, touch and feel the vehicle before making the purchase. So through that, we do offer a pickup option. So the consumer will go through the financing process, they'll come pick up their vehicle, and if literally they don't like the vehicle or something is just off um, or they've made a different decision, you know, they don't actually have to take the vehicle with them, they can literally, you know, return it at that point in time. So for us, you know, our counter to that test drive is not only the pickup, but we have a seven-day return policy. What we've understood through speaking to consumers is they don't really learn much from a test drive other than it's just comfortable sitting in a vehicle and feeling like it's tangible, you know, that they can touch it and feel it before making the purchase. But with our seven-day return policy, uh, our customers are able to, you know, drive their vehicle on their daily routines. They could take it on a long highway drive. You know, they can do a whole bunch of stuff that kind of fits their lifestyle and truly feel if that vehicle is right for them. And within that seven-day period, if anything is off, they can trade that vehicle in for another vehicle we have on our site um, or return it. Um, so, again, it allows consumers to really get a feel for a vehicle before truly committing to that vehicle where a traditional dealership, you drive off the lot, that's your vehicle, irregardless of what may happen. You've got skin in the game, but I understand what you're saying. Chris, uh, thank you for the time. Yeah, my pleasure. A whole bunch of asks will be coming up in the, you know, the round of what we want for the B.C. budget, the next provincial budget. But uh, here's one that seems to have slipped, because if I remember right, it was a promise by the NDP, and that is free contraception for everybody. Well, advocates are now starting to think about this and renewing the ask heading into budget time. 
And, well, the chair of Access BC, the campaign for this, is Teal Phelps Bondaroff. Bondaroff, thank you so much for uh, joining us this afternoon. What is the ask and why? It's good to talk to you, Bruce. Yeah, so the ask is to make all prescription contraception universally available at no cost. So free prescription contraception for anyone who wants it. And the why is simple. You know, free prescription contraception improves health outcomes for mothers and infants. It makes life more affordable for people. It increases equity um, and equality. And it's going to save the provincial government millions of dollars. So it's a fantastic policy that's revenue positive. And it's one that we've been advocating for at the Access BC campaign for over five years. And Teal, my understanding was this was supposed to come around this last uh, term, was it not? So the policy was in Minister Dix's mandate letter in 2020, and we're excited to see it in his new mandate letter. This is the Minister of Health's uh, new mandate letter now. It's on page five to make prescription contraception free for all. And we have been waiting um, you know, patiently for this policy to come about, uh, but we're also not waiting you know, with our you know, twiddling our thumbs. You know, we're campaigning hard. So if folks want to urge the government to include this policy in the current upcoming budget, they can visit our website at accessbc.org where they can write to the Premier, the Minister of Health, um, and you know, talk to their MLAs to, to make sure that this policy makes the budget because it's a really important policy that impacts everybody in the province and it has fallen by the wayside over the past few budgets. And when it does come into being, if it uh, does uh, get the approval in the budget, which you now expect, uh, how would somebody access, access that uh, free, uh, free system for contraception? Would it be a different way of doing it? Well, the, the way that we would envision it, and I think the government will come up with the, the best way that they'll, they'll, you know, they've given a lot of thought, is you, know, you go to your pharmacy, you get your contraception, you just don't pay for it. And this is done around the world. So in the UK, if you are getting prescription contraception, you get it at the pharmacy, they give it to you, you don't pay for it, and all the details are sort of behind the scenes between the pharmacist and the government. Um, and there's also savings, of course, with bulk buying and things like that. But the idea is that you make it as easy as possible and you remove cost as a barrier to accessing contraception. And that's not to say that there aren't other barriers, but cost is a major one. And what research has found is that when you remove cost as a barrier, people reach for more reliable forms of contraception. And those reliable forms are more expensive. Uh, so like an IUD would cost between, you know, uh, 75 to $380. And those costs fall disproportionately on women and people who can get pregnant. So this is why it's an important equity issue as well. And thanks, well, for taking time to uh, to bring this up and uh, to share that with us. Teal, Access uh, BC Campaign is uh, the website, or what is the exact uh, URL? Yeah. Yeah, our website is accessbc.org, and we're currently fundraising to put up billboards in Vancouver and Victoria, and we're mobilizing people to write to the minister and the premier to encourage them to include free prescription contraception in the upcoming budget. Teal Phelps, Bondaroff, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. You have a great weekend. December. It is the holiday season. And if you're looking for something to do this afternoon... Well, here's an idea, and it uh, is going to happen downtown in about two hours' time. That's when it gets underway. It is the holiday pop-up on the square. It's a free two-day family-friendly event right in the heart of downtown Vancouver. And by the heart of downtown Vancouver, we're talking oh, over on the north side right at the uh, art gallery. And uh, that's happening just in a couple of hours' time. What is it? Well, it's going to be local vendors, live music, food trucks, all those different things that you would associate with a good time for the holidays and, as I mentioned, Friday afternoon. Great time to do it. 
Well, to talk a little bit more about this is interim CEO with Downtown Van putting on the event, Jane Talbot. Jane, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. I'm always happy to talk about what's happening downtown. Yeah, right at the North Plaza there. Now, I saw, was it this morning or was it yesterday morning, but a giant tree when I was coming into the dark tower here. Is that part of this? Isn't it beautiful? It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So it's right on the square. It's a central focus piece. It's so festive and bright, and you just can't not be happy when you see it. And I'm actually... You know, I'm going to get Leo, who's right across from me, the technical producer, because he could stand up and he can look out his window right now and confirm that that tree is uh, all lit up because he could see it from where we are. Uh, And he's giving me the thumbs up. Uh, But that's one of several things. Tell me what's going to happen from four o'clock to 10 o'clock this afternoon at the art gallery. Okay, so as you say, from 4 o'clock to 10 o'clock, we're hosting a free two-day family-friendly event. Um, we have 30 local vendors. We have live music. We have buskers. We have food trucks. We have a, a very Instagrammable, inflatable snow globe that, weather-depending, uh, you may actually be able to get, I believe, right inside of it. Um, we're giving out... Uh, hot chocolate and uh, cider to the first 250 people who attend, and that's from Scavenger Coffee. And it's just going to be a great opportunity to come out and support local artists. Do you think you get a lot of people, it's right in the heart of downtown, as you mentioned, as I've mentioned, do you think you get a lot of people that uh, didn't even know this uh, was happening and look over at the art gallery and think, uh, wow, what's this all about? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, we know that visitor traffic is increasing downtown. And we know that a lot of people are just super busy in their day-to-day lives and they're not researching what's happening in downtown. So when you combine those two, we expect quite a bit of um, foot traffic, people just walking by on their way home from work or maybe out holiday shopping or maybe going to uh, the Christmas market. And they see our market and say, hey, this looks great. We're going to pop in. This year, who's uh, providing the music? Oh, tomorrow night from 7 until 8 o'clock, Chorus Studio is a 60-person choir, and they're performing everyone's favorite Christmas carols. And then we have um, a really just a great selection of local buskers who are performing live music. And because this is all open, there's really no tickets or anything like that. It's just uh, you it's, come over, right? You just come on over. It's Free. And like I said, family friendly. So um, no pressure there at all. Just come on over. Well, thank you so much for spending time. And uh, that's a great one for those in and about uh, the downtown core. It's the north end of the art gallery, usually where they have protests and such. But uh, today, uh, happening from four o'clock to 10 o'clock, and again tomorrow, uh, from 1 o'clock to 9 o'clock tomorrow, it is a holiday pop-up at the Square, a free two-day family-friendly event. And Jane, thanks so much for spending time with us and uh, telling us what it's all about. Appreciate it. You're so, you're so welcome. Thank you. You know, the last time we were talking about the Vancouver Grizzlies, we were talking about the premiere of The Grizzly Truth at the Vancouver International Film Fest. Now following its success at the festival, 
the documentary about how Vancouver lost its NBA franchise, well, it's going to be making its way to theaters right across the country. Mornings with Simi producer Jason Manawas caught up with the director of the film to talk about the film's reception and theatrical debut. All right, so thanks for joining me today, Kat. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right, so my first question to you, I've seen pictures, I've seen videos from the reception of the film. People have watched it. How has the reception been for the film so far? Uh, it's been pretty uh, pretty overwhelming. Um, you know, uh, we had a really great premiere in Vancouver, gone into play a few more festivals. Um, but uh, yeah, the reception of uh, the film and, you know, the suspects who I investigate has been really, it's been really cool to see uh, the audience's response to, to these subjects and to these people. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to be able to share the film with uh, a broader audience now. And now without give, uh, giving anything, giving too much away, what have people been saying so far uh, from the people who have watched the film? Uh, what have yeah. they been saying that has shocked them the most or something that has surprised them about the, the documentary so far? Well, um, my favorite is when people say things like, man, why do you have to make me like Stu Jackson or Steve Francis? Those are the the two. And, and then I get so happy when uh, when people say that. But that I've been getting many emails, many messages. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people have been saying that to me and the rest of my team. Now that actually leads to my next question. Uh, the last time we spoke, uh, we were joined by Steve Francis, of course. <laughs> um, so how have Steve Francis, the other players and the other ones uh, involved with this project, how have they reacted to the documentary so far? Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't sent the link out to any other. No, actually, Sharif was asking for it. I haven't talked to Sharif yet, but I know he was asking for it. So, uh, you know, I sent it to his agent. So I'm not sure. I have to follow up and see what Sharif thought about it. Um, but um, the players who were the main players who have seen it were the ones who came to the, the screening in Vancouver. Um, and they all, you know, absolutely loved it. Um what was really cool is afterwards seeing, you know, the, the love of the Grizzlies, um, you know, uh, in that crowd, in that theater and the energy that the audience brought, um, I think it was really inspirational. And a lot of the players like Antonio, Antonio Harvey and Tony Mass, they're kind of, and, and yeah, George Lynch, they were all like, Let, let's keep the momentum going. How do we keep the Grizzlies, you know, love and dream alive. And so I've been, you know, um, just trying to brainstorm conversations as to you know how how can we how can we maybe like have more reunions in the future how can we bring the community uh that loved the grizzlies that grew up through grizzlies uh together and so yeah so those the the grizzly players who were who were in the theater loved the film were inspired by it want to give back to the community in vancouver even more steve francis also really loved it um all the players who were at vif hadn't seen the film before so I was honestly like really nervous <laughs> um, because I wasn't sure like how they would respond. Um, yeah. Steve Francis was sitting yeah. right in front of me the entire screening. And that was so nerve wracking because I wasn't sure how, what his reaction would be. Um, you know, spoiler alert, the scene where, you know, I track him down. It, he, he was laughing so hard in the, like in the theater, which is really cool to see. And I was like, Oh, thank goodness. Like, I think, I think he's liking this. Um, but no, Steve, I mean, I'm so I'm in Toronto right now premiering, uh, the, you know, here to uh, promote uh, the theatrical release in Canada. We're premiering in Toronto on Saturday. Steve is here with me. 
I just bumped into him in the at the hotel. We just kind of oh. checked in. Um, so yeah, so he's here to help, you know, uh, you know, again, share his story, help promote the film. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's, uh, thankfully, Steve, you know, I think I've gotten the approval from Steve. Yeah, that's fantastic. I remember the last time we talked, um, I asked Steve about that. And he said, yeah, that was probably one of his favorite things about you trying to get him on the film where you literally went to a fan signing um, and that's how you were able to get him so now as you mentioned the grizzly truth is now is now set to hit theaters in toronto ottawa winnipeg edmonton calgary and in vancouver richmond langley what will a theatrical run uh, how will a theatrical run impact this film just you know one of my goals when i made this film was to really um showcase how there is a desire and a need for another NBA team. And so like, I'm really hoping that people come out, support the film, show, you know, investors in Vancouver that there is an appetite for the NBA, show the NBA that there is an appetite, there's a need and a want and a desire for a second team in Canada. So again, like I'm just, you know, I'm excited to share the film, but I'm really hoping that people come out to support and, you know, are excited to you know bring back the Grizzlies for you know this limited time across Canada. Now um, you've done projects. Now you've done um, you've done uh, a lot of your projects have been focused locally. Um, does the success of this film open up a potential project for maybe a Canada wide project or even an international project? Does that open something up for uh, for some uh, director like you? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, finding a country to be honest, you know, did that for me. Um, I'm working on a film uh, right now that uh, I can't talk too much about, but um, it's, you know, it's a it's a bigger film in its scope. Um, And, you know, this film hopefully will do the same thing for for my filmmaking career. I know we mentioned we talked about this last time. This film took a long time to produce and to direct. Uh, What would be your message to aspiring directors to producing a film and a documentary like this? Mm hmm. I think the, uh, you know, just always lead with your heart. And I think that's, um, that's something that I've tried to, to do in my work. Um, especially when I'm trying to convince people to be a part of (laughs) my films. Um, and I think that's kind of why Steve Francis said yes. Why Bryant Reeves Big Country said yes. Why all these NBA players said yes. Um, it's because, you know, I really, I approach them, uh, you know, uh, you know, I approach them and uh, in a very empathetic way. And I, you know, kind of opened my heart and said, you know, I'm a child. I explained my backstory and was, you know, tried to be as genuine. You know, I was as genuine um, when I asked them. And, and the reasons why I asked them was to, you know, I want to share your story to help better understand the story of the Vancouver Grizzlies. And thankfully, so many Vancouver Grizzly players, including St. Francis, uh, said yes to to my request. Now, um, if I don't see Cat Jamie on the part ownership of the Vancouver Grizzlies <laughs> when we get our team back, I'm going to be uh, pretty mad if I don't see that <laughs> name there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Cat, and uh, wish you, you all, all, the, all, all the luck, all the success in the world. Thanks, Jason. Well, it is a Friday afternoon and it is the holiday season. It feels more like the holidays, getting more in the mood. And, you know, when you start to think about the holidays, the first thing that pops into my mind, 
Well, second thing, first one is booze. Second one is food. But to talk about some of the great food and dining experiences over the holidays, we're joined by Richard Wallach, the editor and publisher of VancouverFoodster.com. And of course, also the host of Van Foodster, the podcast, Van Foodster podcast. And Richard, thanks so much for being with us. Are, are you kind of excited about the food options? I am. You know, I had a chance to experience some of these in the past week. And, uh, you know, many of them are actually on right now um, till till Christmas or maybe a few days before Christmas, some of them till after Christmas. So there's a lot going on. First of all, there is a lot going on in the city this year, far more than the went on the past few years, of course. And I think, like, everybody is so excited this year to get out and do something. So I'm just going to highlight well, a few let's, of them. Before I, we even get to oh, naming yeah, some sure. of those, let's do this, Richard. Are, are you noticing any themes when it comes to food in general for the holidays, is there any kind of item or any sort of theme that runs through them, or has well, each restaurant kind of got their own stamp on it? I think each restaurant's got their own stamp on it this time because it seems like most of them are the, the favorites, the traditional favorites that you have seen for years and years and years, but done a little bit differently or done a little bit better, that kind of idea. But you're seeing a lot of the traditional this year, and I think that's because the past years. People weren't getting out. They were maybe mm-hmm. doing stuff at home. And this is a chance to get back. But you've got, you know, decor and things like that are a little bit, maybe a bit, little bit different. But I think generally the food is kind of the same of what you might expect, but perhaps a bit better in some of the places. Oh, okay. So let's get uh, to the list. And you mentioned you've... Uh some of these are just from the past week. So these are uh, ones that you're just experiencing now. Yeah, exactly. Some so highlights. Like the first one is a Notch 8 restaurant. Now, they're actually they're in the Hotel Vancouver downtown. They're really good at doing theme kind of afternoon teas, and they've been doing this all year round. They've done them. They did a Queen's Gambit kind of tea uh, previously to this one where they decorated the whole room, and now they've gone ahead and done a festive holiday tea and they've decorated the whole room again at the at the notch eight at, at fairmont and it's beautifully done for the holiday season they're running this afternoon tea from friday to saturday to sunday so friday saturday sunday um, this is running until december 30th three seatings a day 11 a.m 1 p.m and 3 p.m and you need to do reservations in advance of this because i noticed when i was there there were a lot of families a lot of parents bringing their kids along and it was quite full so in order to make sure you actually get in, make a reservation online or give them a call, tell them which, whichever date you want to go, and they have done a phenomenal job. So that's just what I just thought, that the food there is delicious. Like Everything was very good. Canapes were very good. They had a Italian panettone-inspired scone, so that was kind of a fun idea, um, a little bit different to what they had before. You, of course, you choose a tea and you, you decide which one, you, whatever tea you want, but the um, the food was really good. Uh, some of the highlights I thought the smoked salmon on rye bread was very good. Uh, the whipped uh, whipped goat cheese and the shrimp tart were great. And then on desserts, that's where it really stood out. They had a Santa's hat eggnog cheesecake, so that was fun. A chestnut eclair, which you don't see too often, mm-hmm. and a dark chocolate festive ornament. So oh, definitely wow. they they got it. Yeah, <laughs> they got it covered. Like it was visually beautiful and it all tasted really good. So oh my! I was, I was very impressed with that one. And then over at uh, uh, a Shaughnessy restaurant at um, Van Dusen Gardens, they everybody knows they have the Festival of Lights. It's on every year, and it, it's on now. Uh, but in addition to the Festival of Lights being on, the restaurant has done their own Festival of Lights menu, and they've got a elaborate menu, and you can there's lots of choices there. You can go 
to the, if you get your tickets, you go see, go to the gardens first and go to the Festival of Lights, then you can come in for dinner, or you can go in, you know, for dinner and then go to the lights afterwards. Um, you know, the restaurant's been around for 40 years now. People may Is not really? know that. 40 years. And wow. they're doing basically doing the same thing they do every year. Just, of course, the dishes are a little bit different this year than they were in years past. But Chef Matthew Phillips has done a good job of putting this all together. Um, and they've got this running now until, I think it's um, going till January, I think it's January 6th, I believe. That they're running right through the holidays um, with Festival of Lights and, and everything else. So that's, that's a, it's a good idea. Um, they're very busy on weekends. So if you, you know, if you can't get in the weekend, go during the weekday, I think, because it's very busy Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Well, and a heads up on that, because I know in previous years, uh, the Festival of Lights and some of the area around Oak Street gets super busy for yeah. for the cars. <laughs> and parking is, of course, at a premium around there. But, um, yeah, it's uh, something you want to do a little a bit of planning around. So uh, I would imagine that uh, any of the off times may be ones that you want to kind of hit. Yeah, I think so. And then you can do it. You can also do this for lunch. You can do it for brunch, that kind of thing, too. So that's a fun one there. Um, and then another afternoon tea idea. This was very different. This was Holt Renfrew, the department store downtown, has a restaurant inside called the Holt's Cafe. They are doing kind of a fashion twist on their afternoon tea. It's called uh, it's uh, Aperitivo with Armani afternoon tea. So it's kind of mixing the Armani brand into their afternoon tea, which is interesting. And then they're doing the same kind of idea. You choose your tea and that kind of thing. But when you when you have your, your food and all that, um, you also get a gift at the end. Um, and the gift is an, an Armani, Armani bag. You get a couple little cosmetic kind of things inside. You get a card that you can redeem at their uh, cosmetic counter or, you know, cologne counter for that kind of thing. So kind of a fun idea. They've kind of mixed in, you know, it's a you know, department store. So they put yeah. the whole fashion thing together with the food. Um, they also have some um, scones, which are uh, the Panettone type of scone. It was kind of fun. They also, same thing, fun desserts, fun, uh, fun, fun savories. They're running that one through till December 23rd, I believe. It's, it's around Christmas uh, for that one. So that's kind of fun Cafe. if you're in the downtown, yeah. you know, your clothes, your shopping, you can go and do something a little bit different. I feel like and you then, have to be dressed up for that one uh, if you're going downtown yeah, and dressed up <laughs> and have, happen to be around Holt Renfrew, then maybe, yes. Yeah, so actually that one is running through to January 6th as well. So you've got some people have some time on that. And that one is also available daily, so not just the weekend. Anybody can do that every any day of the week. And then across the street from Holt, um, over at uh, the Rosewood Hotel downtown, they have the Reflections Winter Terrace open now, which is gorgeous. I mean, they have it up on the fourth floor. It's all decorated for the season, festively done. They've got beautiful ornaments in the trees and everything. And they're running just their, their, their dinner menu kind of like every night. And it's for the, pretty much right through to mid-January, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you can just go in. You can have a drink. You can have, you know, something to eat. But the fun thing that I saw there is they've got a cocktail. And it's called the Rosewood Christmas Tree. And I was surprised how many people were ordering this. It's $175. It features six cocktails on this tree hanging. And they take it to the table. And you've got this little Christmas tree. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And I started watching everybody ordering it all night long and i thought wow 175 dollars this is amazing but you know when someone likes something they go and do it how many shots is it like is it one drink uh that for one person is that the idea the server told me it's supposed to be for three to four people to share but that's not what's happening it's couples that are getting it because they think it's a fun date night 
And um, oh, sure. It, after it, that, know, it is. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So it makes it makes for a fun night out. But you know, the food is very good there. They also do a very good job with that. There's lots of different things on the menu. And then for dessert, they've got a warm ginger date pudding, which is on right now, and hot apple cider. So it's a, just a fun, great, you know, fun place to go if you want something a bit different. And then at a Showcase Restaurant in the um, Mary Hotel downtown up on Hastings Street, they're doing a holiday lunch buffet on right now. That is on till the um, till December 16th. So it's just a weekday buffet. It's kind of a festive idea. So if you have your office friend, office mates in that area, you want to go for an office lunch or you want to go for a family lunch, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. that is offered on now, and they're changing the menu every day. But they told me that actually if you phone them up, they'll tell you what's going on each day so you'll know what the menu is. So that's kind of a tip to know because other, you know, if you like turkey – you, you might want to go one day, you might like ham, you'll go to a different day. So it kind of gives people a range. They've got a salad bar, they've got soup, hot dishes, and festive desserts every day. So that's kind of a fun one. That's $49 per person, and it's weekday lunch only. And then people can go in last minute. You don't have to make an advance reservation if you don't want to. Richard, let's take minute. one more. Just yeah, one. Um, yeah. yeah, one more is at West Vancouver. It's called the Modern Pantry. It's uh, their holiday brunch pop-up. It is running right now on weekends until this weekend, but they may extend it because it's been very popular for them. And it's kind of fun. It's a a cafe, bakery. They make everything in-house. And they've done a really good job with this pop-up. They've got um, really delicious French toast and all sorts of different kind of egg dishes and things like that and baking. So it's in West Vancouver. It's on Ambleside Drive uh, in the Dunderave neighborhood. Yep. And it's an independent restaurant, and I think they've just done a phenomenal job. So that's something fun. It's something different to do, uh, especially if you're heading over into the North Shore. Oh, those all sound so good. And you know what, Richard? You've uh, made a lot of people very hungry. So if they want more information, of course, they can always go to your website, which is? com. Terrific. Thanks so much, Richard Wallach. Uh, have a great holiday ahead of you. And, uh, boy, the dining sounds great. Thank you.